Welcome to Season 1, Episode 7 of Darker Things. I'm your host, Scott J. Gow. In our last episode, Anatomy of a Police Shooting, we examined one case of police violence, the 2016 killing of Philando Castile in Minnesota. I found it a helpful exercise. We looked at all the different factors that led up to the moment Officer Geronimo Yanez pulled his trigger. What was going on with him prior to the shooting? What was Castile's background and the police department? What were some of the less obvious influences on the situation? There's a lot to learn from revisiting these cases, and if you haven't heard episode six, I encourage you to do so. In the weeks since that episode came out, a lot has happened on the issue of police violence. In Atlanta, 27-year-old Rayshard Brooks, an African-American father of four, was gunned down by a white police officer. It happened outside a Wendy's. Brooks broke free from two officers trying to handcuff him. He stole one of their tasers and started fleeing. While running, Brooks is seen on video pointing back toward the officer with the taser. The officer opens fire, killing Brooks. This happened on Friday night, and over the weekend, the medical examiner determined the cause of death to be homicide. The autopsy showed Brooks died of two gunshot wounds to the back. Atlanta's police chief has resigned. There were protests over the weekend. The Wendy's was set on fire. Here's Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms on the incident. I firmly believe that there is a clear distinction between what you can do and what you should do. While we have a police force full of men and women who work alongside our communities with honor, respect, and dignity, there has been a disconnect with what our expectations are and should be as it relates to interactions with our officers and the communities in which they are entrusted to protect. Across the country, police reform movements are taking shape. Some are more radical than others, but the driving force is that many believe people of color are being over-policed and underserved. Last week, the Minneapolis City Council took the first steps in eliminating the police department. They want to replace it with a new community-led public safety agency. It's unclear exactly what that would look like. Elsewhere, New York's governor has signed a package of bills. One of the measures eliminates the use of chokeholds. Another gets rid of an ancient statute that allowed police to keep their disciplinary records secret. And in New York City, officials are discussing a plan to defund the police to the tune of $1 billion. Now, that doesn't mean disbanding the police force in a city of 8 million people. It could mean trimming the force but it primarily means shifting money from the police budget to other agencies. Specifically, New York City's mayor, Bill de Blasio, said he wants to focus on youth programs to keep young people out of trouble in the first place. Here, his wife, Shirlane McRae, describes what an improved, sleeker police force might look like. The ideal would be just a mix. It's good policing. It's not no policing. It's having a different kind of culture than what we have now that is not uh, so punitive and harsh and, and um, abusive. The kind of police force that we've been working for uh, in these last years, where police are, are seen as part of the communities where they work. In today's episode, we're gonna look at things more from a police perspective. Hopefully we'll gain some insight 
that helps to further the conversation we're all having right now. Our guest is a nationally known crime and law enforcement analyst. I'll let her fill you in on her background, but she's an author, a veteran, a former detective and SWAT team member among her many life experiences. I'm pleased to welcome Lisa Lockwood to the podcast. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Scott. Thank you. Well, before we jump in, can you tell me a little bit about your background? It's very extensive and varied, so I think people would like to hear about it. Sure. I'm, I'm an Air Force veteran, Desert Storm, and then I went on into police work. So I became a police officer in 96 and became a detective and member of the SWAT team entry team. I was also a firearms instructor during that time, and I did undercover work. Anything from posing as a 14-year-old girl to catch sex predators on the internet who were going after children. And a lot of narcotics undercovers and uh, um, some cases that had to do with fencing operations that involved mafia-tied organizations. So I had a, a, a great career and then went on after that to write my memoir, which is Undercover Angel. And started a book tour and then kind of just reinvented myself after that. I did some some coaching and became a contributor on television, a law enforcement analyst or crime analyst. And I've been doing that since. What do you enjoy about educating people on law enforcement issues? It's twofold. One of the things I really love educating people on is just how to stay safe in general. So just for the public, finding ways that people can either stop crime, not be a target of crime. And if they are a target of crime, how they can safely, the most safe way to get out of certain circumstances. So, you know, anything from vehicular hijacking, you're at a gas station, somebody, you know, puts a gun to your head and tells you to drive, you know, kidnapping, that sort of thing, how to save yourself, because those don't always have to be deadly. A lot of times they end up that way, but I love giving people tips that are just going to, in general, make them safe. Then on the other front, um, people having a better understanding of what happens from a police perspective. Obviously I had, I had worked undercover. I was part of a, an elite SWAT team and then also a patrol officer. I love every aspect of police work and learning along the way. Every situation is different. And, you know, a lot of the shootings that are, that are, have happened on the job. Um, I haven't been involved in any shootings. Thank God. A lot of police officers haven't. I think the, the percent is so high. 99% of police officers have not been involved in, in shootings across America. So the percent that does, um, the training that takes place prior to that to prepare you for that, it needs to be continued, continued police education for those situations. What about educating people on safety concerning the police? Because right now, obviously, it's a touchy subject. You know, many people are afraid right now when it comes to the police. So obviously that's not something citizens in the United States would like to have that feeling. You know, they'd like to feel safe sure. around the police. But of course, how do you talk about that? There was actually a comedian. I can't think if it might have been Chris Rock who, who put kind of a funny take on it because it's a touchy subject. Yes. You know what to do, what to do. How do you respond? And the first thing we are taught in the academy as police officers right out of the box is to know where the person's hands are at all times. So that's why it's always reiterated. Show me your hands. Show me your hands. Where are your hands? You you just don't want to see furtive movements that could be a criminal reaching for something. You know, you look at it as 
you know, I'm, I was going for my wallet. I was going for this. So just following the directive of the police officer who's standing there, if the public was aware that we're a hell of a lot more scared in, in cases like that, where we're pulling somebody over, where they may have a warrant, where they're a suspect of a robbery, we're not 100% sure, but we're on edge in those moments, thinking the entire time, this could be the day that I don't go home. So listening to the directives in a sense of thinking that this police officer is a little bit scared themselves. Nobody wants to admit that with the bravado of law enforcement, but it's ingrained in us that if we don't see hands, those hands are up to danger. So I would say that the general training with the public is, is follow the directive, which is show me your hands, get down, turn around, walk backwards, get down on the ground, stay there. Following those commands make us feel safe and everybody else around feel safe until we could find and ascertain what the situation is that we're trying to quell, we're trying to solve, trying to determine whether or not that person had just committed a crime. We'll get back to the big picture in a minute, but you've kind of led me into the case that I talked about on the last episode of the podcast, which is the Philando Castile shooting by Geronimo Yanez in 2016. That was a case where he approached the car and the officer couldn't see where his hands were going. There are a lot of other issues there, though. I'm just curious your your thoughts about that case in general. Sure. Um, a lot of police officers don't like to play armchair quarterback because we're never in those exact shoes to know how we would have handled it, how it could have went better. Right. So from my perspective, there there was a fumbling in the fact that he told him to reach for certain items. So one directive was, go ahead and show me your driver's license and registration. So now we have a compliant person who was attempting to do that. In that attempt to get those items, that subject in the car went on to say, Philando, I just want you to know, officer, that I have a gun and I have license to carry that. That's when everything needed to change in that moment. So once he said that, the officer kind of saw red and thought to myself, thought to himself, subject has a gun, I need to see the hands. So it was instead of don't reach for it, don't reach for it, don't reach for it, it should have been a command of put your hands on the steering wheel. Because the, the person's brain at that time, the passenger, the, the driver rather, is thinking, I'm doing what the officer said. Now he's saying don't reach for it. And then he's confused. What do you mean don't reach for it? You wanted my license. I'm going for my license. So mm -hmm. all of this is going on. That communication barrier completely was lost in that moment, and the officer responded in a way that he thought it was a life-and-death situation because he was no longer following the new command of don't reach for it, don't reach for it, don't pull it out. Yeah. And as I said, the confusion that came of I'm complying, I'm not reaching for it, I'm getting the thing. And, okay. you know, so it's very hectic. And the fact that he thought he was pulling somebody over who was a suspect for a robbery. And now gun is in his head and it's almost like a bull who's seeing that that red, uh, you know, uh, bullseye and all of a sudden tunnel vision sets in. And I believe that was the case for him. In a case like that, though, he thought it was a, he thought it was a felony stop. Yes. Aren't, aren't police trained to stay back from the vehicle and, and issue commands that way? That way they can get the keys out, put the hands on the dash because he was so engaged, he was two feet from the True. person in the car. True. So we have a felony stop. Now, you're exactly right on that. 
how felony stop is handled is that you're behind that border that's the, the border that's between the two windows. So you're far enough behind to where you're taking the person off guard where they have to do the gooseneck in order to see you. And when they're goosenecking, the hands are on the steering wheel, all that happens. But this officer wasn't conducting a felony stop. What he was doing was trying to ascertain, is this person? Mm -hmm. I don't know for sure that this person is that. That's why he proceeded to say, I stopped you because one of your brake lights was out in the center, in the rear. Are you aware of it, et cetera? And he was using that as a pretense to take that person off guard because he wasn't sure if that was the case. However, Scott, I know in my training, if I think I'm about to pull over a suspect, if that seed is planted in my mind, I will execute a felony stop. There's no reason not to. And he would have been justified in that action and making that stop and sussing it out and would have had, you know, Philando probably later on saying, okay, I get it. I looked like somebody, you know, you had to take me out of the car that specific way and everybody's safe and everybody gets to go home. And the attorneys for Yanez, you know, later said this, this wasn't about race. This didn't have race. It wasn't involved whatsoever. But the reason for the stop was that he thought uh, this person was a suspect in a robbery and he identified him you know, across racial lines, which there have been decades of studies saying those kinds of IDs are very difficult to make. People are much better within their own race. And then they have like stereotypes about faces of other races. So there's sort of a racial component there. And then you have the fact that the police department in this case was citing people of color disproportionately. And Yanez and his stats lined up with that. So, you know, he didn't have a formal complaint against him. He didn't have any racist incidents in the past. But still, do you see that there is still kind of a racial component with these situations? For the identification purposes, all depending on, did the police officer pull up next to him? Was he able to look into the window and have a head on? I would want to know that. You know, if I was the attorney looking at that situation is what made, what led you to believe that this was the person other than the color of the skin? Mm -hmm. And I think something came out with, you know, in the face and the way that the nose, the, the nose was similar to it. So how long did you have an opportunity to actually look at them and make that identification and then draw the link to have that happen? And if that was the case, it should have been a felony stop should have been a felony stop of go ahead reach your hands outside the window open the door from the outside and you know to the woman stay in the car until the other one there's a whole procedure for all of that so it is unfortunate it is unfortunate if there was another step in furtherance where the vehicle fit the description you know maybe the plate was different but you have a subject who looked like a subject who was wearing clothing that looked like the subject the car, the vehicle, even the scene, but just looking at, you know, at the face and saying that, well, it, it looked like him, you know, how fleeting was it that that officer was able to pinpoint and get a real eyeball on that subject prior to? This local police department is obviously not alone. There have been studies and statistics all over the country where people of color are pulled over disproportionately, and that increases the odds that something bad will happen. So I'll ask you this. Do you believe that there is systemic racism in our criminal justice system? I, I do not believe that. But there is a thought, there is a belief, I, I would have to say, on, on profiling. 
And people say, oh, you know, profiling is wrong, profiling is racist, profiling is this, profiling is that. Police need to use color as an identifying factor. It's a must. It's an absolute must. One of the first things that we're trained for, if you see a subject running down the street, the first thing that stands out for any lay person, for anybody, is white, black. Okay, so you have that right away. Later on, maybe Hispanic, you can see and do that. You're able to see a color. Then you've got clothing. Then you've got height, weight factors. So the first thing visually that people see as an identifier is that, well, the determination, is it a male, female, obviously, is the number one. Then the color of skin than the clothing that they're wearing. So when we're looking for somebody, those are the order of how it comes out. So that profiling needs to happen when we're calling out a suspect that had just committed a crime. We know of somebody that we're on the lookout for. Um, you know, even if a child is lost, you know, these are the things that we're using as a determinant for it. And finally, on, on that case, before we move on, the outcome was disappointing to a lot of people, second degree manslaughter charges, and then a couple of firearms charges. And he was found not guilty on all of them. And the jurors said, you know, they were kind of in a bind by the law that he, he the culpable negligence standard was not met for his actions. Do you th and there's been a study that showed in from 2013 to 2019, 99% of uh, incidents where police kill citizens, there's no charges at all. What do you think needs to change here? Well, education is, is the biggest part of it on both ends. Police training, where police are put in scenarios and, and being part of SWAT, I was constantly put in training with the DEA, with, with ATF, with FBI. And these trainings were so intensive of shoot, don't shoot scenarios. We would have buildings set up or entering buildings where we have subjects pretending that they're, they're victims of domestic violence or you have kidnappings. These shoot and don't shoot scenarios where you're put in a situation where you believe it's true, life and death. They're armed with paint guns, less lethal force, and you're put in those situations over and over again. You start to get a feeling of, okay, this is how I need to respond. I don't need to be so fast on the trigger. I don't need to, I could pull out a less lethal weapon. I could distance myself, but there's just not enough of that. And for the public, as I said to you before, is following the directives, saying to the public over and over again, if the police see your hands, they feel safe. Get them out of your pockets, get them out from under where you're sitting, put them on the steering wheel, extend them out the window, Hands kill. That's what we're taught from the military to police basic training to the academy. Hands kill. We need to see hands. The attorneys for one of the officers in the George Floyd case came out recently and said, what about the people on the street who were watching? Shouldn't they have done something? What do you think about that? Oh, boy. I, I hate this case. I hate this case so much for yeah. so many reasons. Um, you know, it's a, it's a horrible, horrible thing that happened to somebody that it was completely undeserved. And the fact that we have police officers who are, I believe were negligent, who didn't step in and offer any kind of support and know that that officer was abusing his power, uh, eight minutes being on somebody's neck. And then citizens who were there watching it, the 17-year-old the, the, the girl that was filming it, and anybody else that, you know, just could have, 
in my, the way I felt is if I were a citizen on the street, now I've got police training and everything else, I feel as if I would have went over there personally and put my arm around his neck and ripped him off of the guy. Hmm. You know, you've got a man that is handcuffed on the ground that offers no other threat. Not to say handcuffed people cannot hurt you with their legs and everything else. I've been kicked, you know, with a person that I've had in the back of the car that was arrested, handcuffed, and I've been kicked in the face and everything else. You know, that things get crazy. But in that particular case where he was on the ground and you've got three backup officers on the scene, there was no reason for that whatsoever. So public response, I think, uh, you know, I wish as a private citizen I had been there because I know that I would have stepped in without doubt, without a doubt. Well, I heard one police chief said he recommends, uh, you know, people record the situation, protest as loudly as possible, and somebody call 911. Um, but back to the actual situation that occurred, I just, I'm having, I, I think everyone's just having a extremely hard time getting their mind around the whole notion that the officer needed to keep his knee on this man's neck for eight and a half minutes for a $20 counterfeit bill. What, where does that come from? Why, why didn't they just get him up in the car? Yeah, he was in the car initially in, in part of the video that I had seen. So I, I had some confusion with that where he was in the car and then why was he taken out of the vehicle still cuffed? So I'm not sure if you, you saw that footage and there are still loose ends there from the time that he was out of the vehicle and walked around the vehicle where we didn't have video footage. And we probably do have it from the, the cams that the police officers actually use, but I haven't been privy to it. All of that doesn't make sense to me. Why he was laying there on the ground, why an ambulance, he had a hard time breathing initially. So if the guy's got a hard time breathing and the rookie ends up calling for the ambulance, you know, why are you on his neck? To me, it was just like, from my sight, from what I saw, looked just like pure evil incarnate. Like this man was just possessed on top of him. And his goal was to kill this guy. I mean, it looked so blatant and horrid. And of course, there were many angles from which people had their cell phone cameras. And over the last few years, we've had a lot of these incidents recorded, which is great for uh, transparency in the uh police uh, community, but at the same time, is there a thought that somehow this is undermining trust in police because people are seeing video after video after video? It, it is. It is in the sense that we're, you know, we're not seeing all the good things of all the police interactions. Imagine this, 250 million interactions with the public annually, police have, okay? About a thousand of those cases, a thousand of 250 million police fatally shoot those individuals about 30 to 50, not percent, 30 to 50 total out of those thousand, they're considered unarmed people. Okay. So, or, or, you know, or bad shoots. So, you know, in those particular cases, the percentage is so small and the public is seeing just those small percentage, how many good shoots were out there, how many people were saved because of good shoots by police officers, et cetera. So yeah, the public image is that this infant, infinitesimal number is high because of the media coverage. They're awful. Even one is awful, but the police image because of the media coverage based on these, um, unfortunately is the public is going to be very much skewed by it. I didn't know that term. Can you explain what a good shoot is? 
Uh, a good shoot is when you have, you know, a subject that's, let's do a hostage situation. You've got a hostage situation of an armed gunman and a police officer and a sniper is able to take out the armed gunman before he hurts somebody else, before he kills somebody else. Okay. Uh, police, you know, somebody else that's in, uh, you know, a gang member that shoots on the police and the police are able to shoot back, not hurt the public, but stop the threat. What do you think is the biggest misunderstanding that the public has about law enforcement? I would say the overall systemic racism, because as I said before, imagine of all the police agencies across city, state, county and federal and all the interactions, as I said before, 250 million interactions with the public and all the scenarios that go down and the small amount um, that have to do with Police officers who have their own agenda that get into the job because of that agenda, get into the job because of the power that comes with the badge. I saw people get flushed out of the academy because of that. I call it John Wayne syndrome, where they get in there, they get the badge, they get pumped up, they have their ego inflated, they're narcissists. Somehow they pass the psychological um, content of getting into the academy, becoming a police officer, and then hell breaks loose when they're out on the street and they start using that power um, in a way that's not, it, it shouldn't be used. They're abusing that power. Do you think law enforcement in general gets the issue that uh, society is, is trying to tell police officers, right? You know, after situations like this, we, we keep repeating the same cycle where there's a lot of protests and, uh, you know, people are outraged. Do you think that there has been a change in attitude in law enforcement? I do. I do. I look back to 9-11 when police and law enforcement, police, fire and law enforcement were uh, exalted, where they were the heroes and they could be depended on, they could be trusted, et cetera. And then over time, um, that started to fade away. And then what happened over time and people getting into, you know, a, a, a different feeling about it or, you know, a, a terrible video is released. And then all of a sudden there's a, there's a public outcry and there deserves to be an, a public outcry. But I think just the tainting of it because of the exploitation uh, by the media and not enough exploitation of the great things that police officers are doing out there. Um, because people remember that people remember the worst. They don't remember the 250 million great things that happened out there. It also, I think it doesn't help when you have a situation like this, then there are protests and inside the protests, there's pro police brutality situations where officers are using tear gas and in some cases punches, uh, vehicles. So <laughs> that's frustrating. Oh, it's the, it's the worst. It's frustrating. I've been obviously watching it all and, and seeing it and thinking to myself, oh my gosh, you know, these are, these are my, my brothers in, in law enforcement who are now put in situations where they're out there with protesters and they're getting death threats and they're getting shot and they're getting beat up and they're working 12 and 16 hour shifts and they're on edge. And, and think about this, like any person out there that's in a stressful situation for long periods of time what's going to happen to their psyche, what's going to happen to their, you know, it, all of all of their, you know, heroics and everything that they did over the years, their psyche becomes completely flipped to the other side of I'm not appreciated. I'm hated, you know, just like people who come back from war, you know, in, in the seventies and what have you that feel that they're being spit on and disrespected and everything else. So 
um, yeah, when you're looking at a police officer, you know, in the face and saying, you know, I hate you and I spit on you, how do you not take that personally from the public when you know you're not the person who committed the crime, when you're out there and you chose a profession that you wanted to do, do good as probably, you know, I would say 90% of police officers have done. They want a good career. They want to take care of people. They want to provide for their families. And then you've got, they, the, the media keeps calling it the bad apple, the bad apple, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. The people that get through, you know, through and get on the job and then abuse their power. So what's happening to these guys? I think, you know, there's depression, there's psychological issues. These men and women in, in, in law enforcement right now who need to deal and pick up the pieces and they feel completely just defeated, not supported by, you know, their, their mayors, their, you know, politicians and, and everybody else where they're made to look like the ugly. And then what happens when people start being labeled the ugly, they start to behave like the ugly. Hmm, that's really interesting. I picked that case, uh, the Castile case, because of the different layers of it. And I thought Officer Yanez uh, seemed to be a pretty good person and police officer, but he just seemed to not be able to handle the stress of these situations. Yes. So there's a lot, there's a lot there. How do you, what do you tell individual police officers, or if you could, uh, what would you tell them? Um, you know, you mentioned education in the big picture, but on a micro level, what should officers maybe think differently about when they're patrolling the streets? I think every, every officer wants to go home at the end of their shift. They're thinking to themselves, how, how can I safely get home, get home to my family, you know, and, and just survive and not be, you know, laid out by a bad guy. So if that's the underlying theme of a police officer who's starting their shift and they're dealing with subjects who, you know, it, it, shooting, stabbings, robberies, domestic rapes. And they're dealing with that over and over and over again. People have a tendency to think that police officers become immune to those things. So the last thing a police officer wants is psychological help, I have found. And thinking they don't need it because of bravado and ego. But I would have to say that get a check-in with yourself. Get a check-in either with your, your, your church, your religion, or somebody psychologically to see a therapist to talk about, you know, what it is that bothers you about the job. If it's something that you shouldn't be in, maybe you need to change careers if you're not able to handle it. But with the underlying thing of, I want to go home. I don't want to die on my shift. When you're released after roll call, it's a, it, it is like a bull seeing red and you're in that moment of, I might die right now and I'm not going to die. And this is how I'm going to handle it. What about police officers looking out for each other? Because this Yanez case, he had an incident a few months earlier where he almost got hit by a car and then he chased the suspect and then there was an altercation. It ended fine, but he was caught on tape breathing deeply for about 13 minutes, hyperventilating essentially. Right. Uh, so there was a sign there and his fellow police officers were there while he was doing that, trying to calm him down. So what role do fellow officers have to play in pointing out, okay, maybe we have an issue here? Yeah, well, that's just a matter of reporting it. Every year, the, the, twice a year, police are required to do a physical fitness test, and that's to make sure you're fit for the job. So a lot of times, when imagine being at a complete stop and then taking off at full speed. 
after someone. You know, what happens to you? Adrenaline, you know, again, it's the fight or flight situation. So you have to think to yourself, what happens to me just in, in the public, you know, as, as a normal citizen, if I took off running after somebody and, you know, they just committed a crime, there's going to be a certain amount of, of heavy breathing, you know, that just comes with it. And I wasn't aware of this, the 13 minute, how long it takes for him to get his heart back and everything else. But the police officer responded who thought it may have been odd or peculiar that it took longer than normal is that maybe he needs to have a physical evaluation to find out, you know, can, is he okay? Is he fit? Does he have a good heart, et cetera? Mm -hmm. There are so many, our, our gun culture is so entrenched in this country and it's unique around the world. Do you think that law enforcement at this point, I guess with all the guns on the street could ever go backward, uh, you know, maybe use more tasers and things like that? Or are we too far down the road? Well, tasers, obviously, the, the tasers aren't meant to, you know, stop a deadly uh, threat. Tasers are used in situations where you want to stop somebody who, you know, may uh, propose something. Because you're going to, if it's, if, if somebody's got a gun, somebody's got a knife within a certain range of you, that's deadly force. And you, a police officer, have every right to pull out their weapon for that scenario because of the stoppability of that. If you have a taser, what you know, and there's a possibility the taser is not going to reach that person, that subject, and stop the threat. Now you're dead. That person can kill you if you miss that that shot. If that makes sense. So oh, yeah. tasers, police are trained to use tasers in certain situations, not as a replacement um, for lethal force when lethal force is needed to be used. You know, there's so, so many people say, oh, he had, a, he had a knife. You didn't have to shoot him. Well, oh, yes, you do, because a knife is deadly. A knife can penetrate uh, a ballistic vest. And people aren't aware of that. So if somebody's with a close enough range and you take the one-two lunge, a police officer can be dead. And then depending, obviously, on size, stature, and all those things. But a police officer has enough time to retreat from a situation to get out of a deadly force situation, you know, they, they try, they, they make those attempts. There's a word out there right now. People are talking about defunding the police, taking some things off the plate of police officers and handing them over to social workers, things like resolving family disputes and moving homeless people into shelters, things like that. Do you think that's a good idea? Because police officers do have a lot on their plate. Depending on which agency, you know, how big your jurisdiction is, you know, state police, et cetera, a lot of a lot of those things are leveraged out. So you do have people who handle that, you know, somebody that needs psychiatric evaluation when you have victims and people are handed off and put in a system in a, in a different way. No question about that. You have your emergency services people who show up, who have police training, part timers who handle certain things as well. So if the defunding was based on that, leveraging out to the people who are more equipped to handle the psychological aspects of police work, then yes. I love psychology. Psych I've got a degree in psychology. I've got a degree in criminal justice. And I think, if anything, I would love for more police officers to have psychology training because of different walks of life um, that are out there that you're dealing with, not to take so many things personally. I've been in police situations where I've been on responding to my own calls, having backup arrive, having a seasoned veteran come in, 
and completely turned my call upside down because of the machismo and the bravado and they dealt with this person in the past and they know how to deal with it and it can only be deal dealt with with force, et cetera, versus using your verbal skills instead. So that's part of the training that I'm a huge advocate for. Lisa, is there anything else as you've been watching all of this unfold in the last few weeks that you'd like to point out? I would say, uh, you know, across the country right now, I have a lot of my brothers in arms and sisters in arms who are horribly outraged at what happened to George Floyd. Floyd, They are just, we are in awe. And that's why I used in the beginning, it felt like pure evil incarnate watching this. I, I couldn't stomach watching this and screaming at this video. Why isn't anybody doing anything? Why isn't anybody getting this guy off of him? Clearly, this man has just lost the plot. He's having a mental breakdown. There's something happening in this guy's mind. So police officers are out outraged that this happened, no question about it. Um, I, I think going back to the psychological, a lot of police officers are probably going to need therapy after this because of the public opinion regarding blanketing and the stereotype of all police officers do this and it's it's systemic and as i said before giving you the statistics that i gave you um it's not systemic it's a small percentage it's horrible but these are individuals and it's not police officers as a whole lisa lockwood thanks so much this has been very helpful and informative i really appreciate you uh giving us your time Thank you, Scott. For more on Lisa's life story, check out her book, Undercover Angel. You can find it at lisalockwood.com, which also has a lot more about her. Connect with Darker Things on social media. On Instagram and Facebook, it's Darker Things Pod. And on Twitter, it's at things darker. My completely random recommendation for this week is a TV show. I know these days, after we've stayed at home for so long, finding a new show to watch is like a glass of water in the desert. And I have a new one, hopefully you haven't seen. It's called Upload, and it's available on Prime Video. So if you have Amazon Prime, it's included. Upload's creator is Greg Daniels. He's the same guy who gave us the American version of The Office and Parks and Rec. The new show is set in 2033, and in this science fiction realm, people have the ability upon dying to upload themselves to a virtual afterlife. But dead people can interact with living people on Earth. There's a murder involved, a love story. The best comparison I can give is it's a more comedic version of Black Mirror if you've ever seen that show. That's going to do it for this episode of Darker Things. Thanks so much for listening and stay safe.